0: Before we get started in today's conversation, I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about our upcoming Summer Institute taking place in Riverside, California on June 22nd through 24th. Our pre-conference is on Counseling in Shame, and the main conference is on Gospel Care, exploring the transformational power of God's grace. We've got an amazing lineup of speakers and workshops at this event. And the best part is that we're offering special discounts on tickets. Supporting churches and IBCD donors can enjoy 20% off their tickets, while current students can get 15% off. We're also offering special rates for groups of six or more people. And if you can't make it in person, don't worry. We're also providing a special live stream option, and your ticket includes downloadable files of all of the great conference content. So whether you're a seasoned counselor or just starting out in one another care, make sure to mark your calendars for IBCD's Summer Institute. Register today by visiting ibcd.org forward slash events and take advantage of these incredible savings. We can't wait to see you there! Hey friends, my name is Christine Chapel, and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, I chat with Brad Hambrick about his book, Angry with God, An Honest Journey Through Suffering and Betrayal. For more help on the issues we discussed today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest, Brad Hambrick serves as the Pastor of Counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina. He also serves as Assistant Professor of Biblical Counseling at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, as well as a council member of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. Brad has authored several books, including Making Sense of Forgiveness, and has served as a general editor for the Becoming a Church That Cares Well for the Abused Curriculum. Hey there, Brad. Thank you so much for joining us again on the Hope and Help podcast. It's great to have you back.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. I appreciate the invitation.
0: I'm looking forward to talking with you about your brand new book, one of your brand new books. You've got several coming out here this year, but this one in particular is called Angry with God. An Honest Journey Through Suffering and Betrayal. So before we get started in our conversation today, I wonder if you could tell us why you wanted to write a book on the topic of anger at God.
1: Yeah, and so, you know, one part is uh, in the role uh, that I'm in serving as a pastor of counseling. I get to jump in on the deep end of the pool of life with a lot of people in some of the hardest seasons of their life. And you know, while anger's on the cover of the book, and that's kind of the nature of anger is it gets all the attention when it's anywhere, uh, the book is primarily about grief. And as I've worked with Christians going through really hard times, they often feel bad for feeling bad. They're not sure what to do when life kind of requires an intense response to be sanguine, to be unmoved, for my emotions to express themselves in pastel in a season like this just doesn't feel like a good fit. But at the same time, how do I bring this experience to God in such a way that I don't feel like I'm being bad? And so helping folks navigate that kind of conundrum is really, it's what the book was meant to be about.
0: At the start of the book, you write that quote angry grief is morally different from selfish anger. I wonder if you can explain what you mean by that statement.
1: Yeah. And I think sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that a given emotion can only have one moral quality. And so if we take anger, we automatically assume like, hey, anger Bible talks about that in James 4. Uh, We get angry when there's something that we want because we want it too much. We've centered our life on that. It reveals idolatry. It reveals selfishness. It reveals harshness and disregard for others. And yes, absolutely, anger can represent all of those things. This book isn't trying to say that all anger is grief anger. Selfish anger exists. It is real there is hope. That hope is found in repentance. Repentance is a good gift that we should be grateful to receive. It's not this punitive thing. But at the same time that there is James 4 anger, uh, just to pick another passage of Scripture, there's, there's also Psalm 44 anger. And Psalm 44 being representative of many places in the Psalms where there's lots of exclamation points. If you just read what the psalmist is saying and you say it in your voice, you can feel your blood pressure increasing. There's accusatory statements where the psalmist is saying things like, Rouse yourself, God. Why are you asleep? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you spiked me like a football? Just to take representative samples from the different ways that the psalmist is talking. And when God was giving us the psalms, as words to be able to speak back to Him. Now, the Psalms are almost like a permission slip, where God's saying, in the midst of a broken world, sometimes you're going to need words like this to capture the kind of experience that you're going through. And if this is all you got, you can bring that to me, because it's actually an expression of grief. You know, it would fit under that beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Again, I'm a, I'm a vision." Oriented kind of person. So uh, I often think of emotions in terms of color. And when you take grief, it's the kind of emotion that we disproportionately paint in gray or kind of a pale blue. But there's times when grief flashes red, when it's got some orange and some yellow, some heat to it. And again, those Psalms of Lament, we see that being embodied and affirmed by God in Scripture as hey, this is real. It happens. It's part of our lived experience in a broken world. You can bring that to me.
0: So Brad, why do you think that anger is a commonly misunderstood or even overlooked part of the Christian grieving process?
1: I think we think being angry is bad. Again, we just have one category for anger, and it's sin. Uh, Even though we would say, uh, like, we believe in righteous anger, But then we kind of go, that's something God does. We could never do that. There's something sinful in everything that we do, which is, you know, not untrue. But there's a sense when we're grieving that at a deep level, our soul is just crying out, this is not the way things are supposed to be. This world is broken. It is wrong. The classic experience of grief when we have a loved one die and we're going, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Death was introduced Genesis 3 forward. Death wasn't a Genesis 1 and 2 experience. Paul describes death in Corinthians as the last enemy to be conquered. That language of enemy says when we grieve, it should rouse us. I think sometimes when we think about our emotions in the midst of grief, we tend to think it's almost as if God is placating our experience. Like he's condescending to it. I get, you know, you're finite and like you have a limited perspective. And, and so God will come down and meet us at that experience. I think oftentimes we miss how much our experience echoes God's original experience. That when God sees creation, his good creation shatter at the fall in this, this sharp wince of No, I meant something so much better for you, and you wrecked it. I'm not giving up on you, but it doesn't mean I'm unmoved. And when we see those things that aren't the way that they're supposed to be, and that flashes in our soul, I don't think it's just that God condescends to our experience, but that there's a part of that that's kind of that image of God reaction where we're actually resonating the experience that he had first, and so again, the way that we treat anger as just a selfish emotion, uh, and we don't see that side of it that can be a right response to the broken of this world is why I think we can dismiss the experience of anger as a component of grief.
0: What does it sound like, or what does it look like for someone to be angry? in their grief at God for the hurts that they've experienced? Well, and I think
1: oftentimes, uh, you know, the if you looked at the cover of the book, it says angry at God and the at is scratched out uh, and it's replaced with with. Um, and I think our instinct, whenever we are angry and God is in the vicinity of our anger, we just assume we're angry at him and that that's bad. The invitation of this book is to do our grief-anger with God. And I think most of us have had that experience where, okay, we're angry at a friend. And it's us versus them. One person's going to win, one person's going to lose, and we don't want to be the loser in that. We've also had the experience where we're talking with another friend. We're not angry at them. We're just we're sharing our anger with them. And our voice may reach the same decibel level. Our words may be just as sharp. Our blood pressure may go up just as much. Our eyes may be just as sharp and daggered eyes in both conversations. But at the end of the second one, we look at our friend and say, thank you. I feel better. You've heard me. You've cared for me. I feel like you understand. And uh, the invitation of this book is, hey, when our emotions are raw, and we don't know if this is sin or if it's an expression of suffering. Can we bring that to God as if it's safe to explore it with him? Say, say, hey, can we talk about this? I'm tore up and I don't know what to do with it. I think you're a good enough father. You don't want me to just stuff this. You give me the Psalms as an invitation to come to you with things like this. And if there are parts of this that I'm being selfish, I'll hear that. If there are parts of it where I'm upset because this is a hard, broken world and the difficulty of life is not the way you intended it to be pre-Genesis 3, then I want your compassion. You know, This is one kind of a plumb line statement for me and most anything I write. Uh, is The gospel speaks to both sin and suffering. It just speaks to them different. The gospel offers forgiveness and freedom for sin. It offers comfort and meaning amid suffering. And so as we're trying to figure out, like, where does my emotion fit? Is it that I'm being selfish? Is it that I'm responding to suffering? It can be a bit of both. I mean, it's uh, it's not as if we're all one or the other. But when I don't think God has any compassion for my suffering, I get really defensive towards Him. He becomes this like cosmic cop that I don't trust, that I think is only out to get me, and I lose the fatherliness of God in the way that I'm relating to Him. That's what this book is trying to help people sort out.
0: Brad, I really appreciate how you continue to remind the reader pretty much every chapter about the fact that this is a journey, that going through and examining the different pains, the events that we have experienced in the past. You actually have a chapter that helps people. You give them some guidance as to how they can begin to kind of get out of their brain and onto a piece of paper, the different pains that they've gone through just to help with that processing experience. Uh, But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about a statement you say early on in the book, where you say that it's helpful for those who feel angry at God to approach their pain as, quote, a life-shaping, but not necessarily life-defining experience and a difficult journey. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that?
1: So I use the, the metaphor of journey or the idea of narrative quite a bit because it, I think it helps us understand how we make sense of our life. Um, and one thing that I'm aiming to do with this book is, I want us to see we can have dark chapters in a good story. Uh, And we don't have to minimize the darkness of one chapter uh, of our life in order to somehow say, well, God is still good and redemptive in the overall story of my life. Uh, I want this to be a book that honors those dark chapters. And some of us live with a lot of dark chapters. But the hope of the gospel is that this is still a It's a good redemptive story that God is weaving in our life. Um, And it's okay to be disoriented and confused mid-journey. In the book, I talk a lot about having a mid-journey perspective on life where most of the Bible is written with an end-of-the-journey perspective. Uh, And so when we read the Pentateuch, uh, those first five books of the Old Testament, those were written by Moses having taken the children of Israel on the other side of Egypt, on the brink of the promised land. We get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John written on the other side of the resurrection. We get the book of Acts written, already seeing the church going to the ends of the earth. And when we read stories of the Bible that have that end of the journey perspective, We feel like God is microwaving our faith to where we have to have an end-of-the-journey faith in the middle of our journey. And again, that's why I love the Psalms. Psalms are uniquely middle-of-the-journey pieces of biblical literature. Many of them don't have closure. Lots of them end with just raw questions where the psalmist hasn't got it figured out yet. And the hope of the psalm isn't how it ends, but in who it's being spoken to. You know, Psalm 88, uh, depending on the translation you have, but in several of the translation it just ends, and darkness is my only companion. Well, the hope of that isn't somehow we parse those words, uh, and darkness is a great companion. No. <laughs> the hope of that is that we can come to God and say, this is how life feels. This is where I'm stuck. And my point in the journey, this chapter is that dark, but I'm trusting you because I know you're a God who writes good stories and you do that with some dark chapters and you're not going to rush me. Like in Psalm 23, my favorite verb in Psalm 23 is when it talks about the valley of the shadow of death. It says, we have a shepherd who will walk with us in that space. And walk is such a patient verb. If I'm the shepherd and I got sheep and we're going through a place that merits the term the valley of the shadow of death, I'm skedaddling those sheep. Uh, Like we are doing what we can to move them at the pace that I feel like we know need to go to get out of here. We have a shepherd that is majestic enough, strong, caring, tender enough that he will always move at the pace of his sheep. And when we're in that dark chapter, we don't have to minimize it. And so, uh, in that part where we're kind of pulling in those themes, that idea that we we can have dark chapters in a good story would be the big idea that that I'm trying to get across.
0: You mentioned it earlier in the conversation, but I'd like for us to dive in a little bit more deeply. Now, you talk about Psalm 44 in an attempt to help us articulate our pain and in learning how to authentically give voice to the hurt in our hearts. You write that quote. We may not always be right in what we say, but God meets us where we are and begins his work from there. So I'd love for you to spend a few minutes helping us to comb through this psalm so that we can see and perhaps even hear what it sounds like for the psalmist to approach his pain.
1: And so Psalm 44, it's the backbone, it's the skeleton of this entire book. Uh, And if your listeners have got it, I'd encourage them to take out their Bible and look at it I'll let them see, they can just visually look at the structure of how it's there in the English text and get a feel for it. But like the first eight verses of Psalm 44 are nothing but praise. I mean, the psalmist's life is going great. And the psalmist is giving God all the credit for every good thing in their life. And so one, we see that like, it's not that the psalmist was selfish and, you know, they were taking credit for things that they shouldn't. That wasn't why things change not for this person. Also, it's the good times that make the hard times harder. If you've known what it is to have wealth, poverty can hurt more. If you know what it is to have a close relationship, then isolation can hurt more. Or even just the good expectation of a cared-for childhood, and that's a good thing that makes that being neglected because it's so good. That's what makes the grief harder, deeper, darker, whatever concept we want to use. And so for eight verses, you see that. And then there's a Salah. Uh, We don't know what happened at the Salah, but it was a train wreck. Because for the next eight verses, whatever it is that happened there that wrecked the psalmist's life, they give God every bit as much blame for the bad things as they did credit for the good things. And we can get into our theological discussions of, uh, is this like a model for how we should pray? Or is this just like the psalmist venting and God giving space for it? We see that God's okay with us approaching Him this way. That when we see this in the psalm, it's not just that God's a big God and He can take it. No, He invites it. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But then you hit the next three or four verses in there, and the psalmist is just confused. Like, they don't want to be mad at God. Like, God, you, you know my heart. You know, like, I couldn't hide something from you if I wanted to. You know me and my inmost being. I don't think I've done anything. If I have, show it to me. Again, it's a paraphrase, but if you look at it, I think that's a, a fair account for the kind of searching and drowning and grappling that the psalmist is going through. And then you hit the end where there's just lots of exclamation points. And the psalmist is like, rouse yourself. Like, wake up. It feels like you're asleep at the wheel. And this is where I am, if, if I can get away with saying it this way, I'm glad there's heresy in the Psalms. Like, not because the Bible is affirming the heretical statements, but because God is saying life feels this way sometimes, and we can talk about it. And then the Psalm ends without much closure. And so to try to embody this, to give a, both a mental image and then a parenting practice, uh, one thing that I do with my boys is kind of each year we try to set aside some time, just me and them. We, uh, we take a man trip. We talk about the season of life that was and what's coming up. And I'll write them a letter that uh, they can keep in a notebook, just letters from Papa that are meant to, to capture those occasions. When they became 13, and this is kind of my attempt to embody Psalm 44, uh, I wrote a letter. I put it in a sealed envelope, uh, and on the cover of the envelope, I just wrote, Papa's an idiot. And I told him, I'm like, look, this is a letter. I don't want you to read it now, but there's going to come a point where you're up in your room and you think whatever just went down was completely unfair and I'm out of touch and and you're just thinking, Papa's an idiot. I want you to open that I want you to remember this letter at that time. That's when I want you to read it. And basically, if I'm just paraphrasing the letter in a few sentences, it says whatever just went down, whatever it is, is not more important than us. You bring me this letter. We'll focus on us. And once that's in a good place, we'll figure it out. And Psalm 44, where it's just this kind of combustion of journey, confusion, things were good, now they're bad, I'm hurt, I'm confused, I'm angry. Psalm 44 is that kind of invitation where God is saying, bring this to me. Like we can talk this way. We'll We'll figure it out once you know it's safe for us to talk about these kinds of things. And really that captures the heart of this book as a whole.
0: As I was preparing for this conversation, I did a little of research on Psalm 44, and I thought it was just really important to remember that not only is this a song, right? It's a piece of wisdom literature, it's a song, but it's a communal lament, meaning that it was sung by a leader, a religious leader, by a group of people. Like it is something that as a collective community, the Jewish people would sing this song, or at least their leader would sing it on their behalf. And so these are words that were voiced in the context of religious gathering. And so, in one sense, it's a grief just knowing that we don't sing that way publicly necessarily. You know, we sing a lot of worship, praise songs, and all of that. But to have something so honest and guttural and confusing and distressing be corporately acknowledged by a religious leader of that day. But I think it's an important reminder for us.
1: When our worship is disproportionately celebratory and it lacks some elements of solemn lament, then that's the kind of thing that indirectly, you know, you're asking like, why do Christians have a hard time with this? Well, our worship experience doesn't open the door to it. There's not a time when we're saying these kinds of things in church and we make eye contact with one another and go, okay, yeah, this is okay. I can express hurt like this in a healthy, God-honoring, faithful, searching way. And so, yeah, I think your point there about the neglect of that in our worship services is part of the reasons why this feels more awkward than it should for a lot of Christians.
0: In this book, you also help us to consider which parts of our emotional experience about God are real, but not true. And you do this by, once again, turning our attention to the Psalms and how frequently the writers, quote, express things that are inaccurate about God, but that felt true to the author in their moment of distress. Can you offer some examples of what this looks like and explain how, quote, distinguishing between what feels real And what is true helps us to begin to doubt the inaccurate statements about God that anger suggests. Yeah,
1: and that difference between things that are real and things that are true are really important when we're suffering, because suffering is never something we feel far off. Uh, Suffering is always something that is right up here in our face, uh, and so the, the example that's always stuck with me is when I was teaching our youngest son how to swim. Good, scrappy little athlete, but uh, he just had this thing about the pool. He did not like the whole idea of getting in water. It, it wasn't his cup of tea. So I'd pick him up. I'd put him on my shoulder. I could feel his little heart pounding. In my shoulder there, he's got his claws in my chest and back like a spider monkey. His pupils are dilated. I can look in his eyes. I, I got a pretty good idea of like, I'm your dad, I know you I got I probably put into words what you're thinking. You're looking at that going, that water is deeper than I am tall. That never goes good for the short guy. You're trying to take me in there. You're evil. Now, if I just go toe to toe with his statements, and try to pick them apart with truth. And I look at him, I go, dude, if I was going to drown you, would I do that in front of this many people? Uh, Like that's. It's true, it's not helpful. Like, I'm going right after the untrue things. It's by sympathizing with the things that are real but not true that I earn the trust to help him doubt the things that are real but not true. And so if I look at him, I go, bud, this is kind of a big deal, isn't it? I mean, this feels scary. It's a brand new adventure. We've not done this before. When you try something new it's it's normal to be scared by that. But look at the pool. The other kids are having fun. They're splashing, and I think you're faster than most of those kids like i uh you if you're that good of an athlete, I think you could like why if we just explore it and so that sense of sympathizing with what is real, beginning to try to create some doubt for those things is a much more effective way to minister to the heart of someone that they've got this thing that is understandably real but not true. Again, what we said about Psalms being mid-journey and putting things into words and even things that aren't true, the psalmist felt the flexibility to say, we can talk this way. That kind of model says we're not being heretically subversive when we come alongside of somebody this way. you know, Even when we look at a, a Romans 8.26, where it says the Holy Spirit is translating the groans of our heart that are too deep for words to the Father. I guess as some of those groans that are being translated are not theologically I-dotted and T-crossed. They're guttural, they're angst, they're roar, they're laced with fear and uncertainty. And we have a high priest who gets it and so often you come to that passage and I'm mixing a few here but you take the passage in Hebrews where it says we can approach the throne of grace with confidence because uh, we have one who's been through everything that we've been through it i often took that idea of approaching the throne of grace with confidence to mean there's nothing too big we could ask of god and theologically that's true and accurate i just don't think it's the point of that passage uh, if you look at that passage What it's saying is that we've got a high priest, Jesus, who completely identified with our experience, who knows every aspect of experience that we have been through. And if you think about that moment where you tell a friend something you've never told anybody before, you're usually at that point looking at your shoes more than you should. You finish talking and you look up. And as you catch their eyes, what you want to know is do they get it Or are they looking confused like they don't understand? And what Hebrews 4 is telling us is we never have to look up with the fear that God doesn't get it, because the Holy Spirit is translating, because we've got a high priest, that these kinds of experiences can be brought to Him. Again, that fear of, is God going to look confused, or is He going to be judging me angry? That's what we're trying to navigate in this book.
0: While there's so much more that could be said in this conversation, and I'd certainly encourage the listeners who are looking for a step-by-step approach to moving forward from angry grief to purchase a copy of this book, I wanted to be sure that we spoke about the chapter on living in the tension of partial understanding. In it, you offer, quote, four facets of anger that revolt against the partial understanding we have of the most painful events in our lives. Can you share what those four facets are? Uh,
1: and so this part of the book emphasizes the anger side of the equation a little more than the grief. Uh, but there are certain things that where anger is just not okay with a partial understanding. Anger wants certainty. Anger is confident. Uh, like, rarely are we angry and second-guessing ourselves. Anger will artificially make fuzzy things clear that you know if i am hurt and god was involved god hurt me i'm connecting those dots anger artificially makes fuzzy things clear and then anger interprets the absence of answers as cruel if i don't immediately have an explanation for what's going on then that's cruel uh, and if we're going to say okay what are some what are some complimenting things that if okay yes i resonate that's what my anger does that's what it says well, we are still living in an unfolding story. The fact that we are angry means our story is not over yet. Lord of the Rings is kind of a classic Christian thing that we appeal to. And if you're halfway you know, between Sam and Frodo going to Mordor, that's an unfolding story. And so we don't expect it to be resolved at that point. Um, it does mean we're going to have to be content with learning, not just knowing. And this is one where that Christian habit that of like, ah, I know what God's doing in this situation, and somehow uh, our best guess at what might be redemptive in it, we put more confidence in it. For somebody who says, I'm just not at a spot where I can do that, and I don't want to guess. <laughs> that Christian tendency to overinterpret things is, it can make this harder. You know, one thing we have to realize here is that faith is a relationship. You know, sometimes we reduce our faith to doctrines. These are the things we know to be true. And knowing these things is having a strong faith. Well, yes, doctrinal element is is an important part of our faith. But faith is primarily relational. It's much more trusting than it is knowing. And so that aspect of I'm in a journey. This is a dark chapter. I don't have to minimize that. I know the author. I can trust them in that. And then also recognizing because this is an unfolding story, my choices still impact the outcome. When I get to that spot where I'm not just grieving, but I'm despairing, I'm beginning to grieve as those who have no hope. I am making choices that begin to surrender the idea that life is meaningless my choices do impact the outcome of my story. And so that part of faith as trusting, faith as relationship of seeing dark chapter good story is part of what allows us to participate with what God is doing so that um, the influence that our choices have on our life is part of what God is using to write that good story with a, of which this is a dark chapter.
0: Brad, we're almost out of time for our conversation today, but I think if we reflect back on the ground that we've covered, it, it's a lot. And you'd certainly don't advise in this particular book that someone wrestle through or process these things in solitude, that there is the necessity for having a good Trusted Christian friend, or even a counselor to work through these very difficult issues. And so I wonder, before we uh, wrap up our conversation, could you talk about why it is important not only to process our angry grief with God, but also to process it with the help of a trusted friend?
1: Yeah. And I really appreciate you bringing that up uh, because when we're hurting, uh, we often just want to get our junk together and then go out and be with people. And there is a unique benefit uh, that whether it's a friend, a pastor, a counselor, that they have the opportunity to be an ambassador of God's eyes and God's ears, not just an ambassador of God's voice. Uh, And sometimes when we think about being an ambassador in the context of counseling, we really put the emphasis on what is being said. Uh, And if somebody goes, You know, I've got this book, evidently, uh, Christine says this does a good job and we trust her. And so, uh, like, we'll go through it and this gives me the answers. Uh, And so why do I need another person? Because we don't just need an ambassador of God's voice. That person who can catch our eyes when we are wondering, am I making any sense? Am I just being selfish and you need to give me like the confused, are you serious look? Or do you give me the compassionate eyes of like, I get it, that's hard. Uh, It's very understandable for you to be tired of just the value of being heard. I mean, God says pray without ceasing, and there's a sense in which we can pray this out. But having the tangible person there that they're a representative of God's presence. Uh, There's a tangible value to that. Uh, and the book was really written, you know, early chapters on how to find a good friend to walk through this with. And it's meant to take some of the burden off your friend because uh, sometimes, I mean, lots of dumb things get said when one Christian's trying to comfort another Christian and they're not quite sure what to say. The book gives a lot of this sense of direction so that the friend can be, it's not that they need to be quiet, but they don't feel like they have to speak when they're not sure what to say. Uh, they can just be a companion on the journey. They can be the Samwise to Frodo that looks at you and says, "You know, I may not be able to carry your burden, but I can carry you. And that value of a friend is just immense. And so that's where somebody picks it up, they start to read, and they go, who would be the person in my life that I would want to invite to take this journey with me? And then the book facilitates that journey.
0: Well, Brad, I am so thankful that we had the chance to connect about this conversation and topic. And I really appreciate you taking the time. But I want to invite you now to do something that I ask every guest of the Hope and Help podcast to do. You've done it before, so I'm sure you're familiar. There may be someone listening today who recognizes that they have angry grief to process. What would you say to this person to encourage them with the hope and help of Jesus Christ? One, just
1: thank you for listening. Uh, Like to to go through this podcast of 30, 45 minutes and have it be something that's speaking to an area that is hurt and raw. I mean, all of us can remember being that kid who had a cut or a scrape and our parents wanted to care for it. And all we wanted to do was to pull that back and no, 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 don't, uh, don't touch it, don't clean it. The courage of your listener Who's saying, hey, I think this was this was for me. And to persevere and to hear this much of the conversation, that really does take a degree of courage that needs to be affirmed. You know, secondly, don't do this alone. And that even if you have felt rushed at best or judged at worst, don't assume that's going to be every believer who wants to come alongside of you and be a good ambassador of God's compassion. I hope this becomes a resource that you can take to somebody and say, this is what I'm looking for. Because, you know, hurt me once, um, shame on you. Hurt me twice, shame on me. Like that sense of putting ourselves out there again. And we're like, "Why, why would I think it could be different? Well, I hope the structure of this kind of resource gives you a reason to say, okay, it makes sense that hope deferred makes a heart sick. I think that's Proverbs 13, 12. It's somewhere in that range of Proverbs, but it doesn't have to be hope deferred. There can be reason to think I can have really meaningful and productive conversations that minister God's grace and compassion to me. And so my biggest thing would be thank you for listening and don't give up.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for those words of encouragement. Brad, if there's someone who wants to get connected with you and your ministry, where's the best place for them to find you online?
1: Uh, two places come to mind would be uh, the website that I keep up, just bradhambrick.com, B-R-A-D, and then ham and brick, just like it sounds. Uh, that's where blog articles and seminar resources and links to things that I do, 98% of it's free. There's a few things that uh, that gets published and the publisher wants to be compensated for that. So uh, there's a few things there, but the vast majority of is free. Uh, And then for social media, the primary thing that I use there is Twitter. Uh, And so if you wanted to follow ministry stuff uh, in social media for me, Twitter's the one that I use for that. uh, And that's just at Brad Hambrick on Twitter as well.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us for this important conversation. I hope that it has been helpful to our listeners.
1: Uh, It has been my pleasure. And I appreciate your willingness to, to have a weighty conversation.
0: Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.